The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 6 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC6. This is Secret Church 6, Episode 9. we got two main sections to go. Uh, first one is the intent of the cross, the intent of the cross. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom, two words, for all. For all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The question is, for whom did Christ die? And I mentioned at the very beginning, when it comes to what has been classically defined as the five points of Calvinism, what you have is total depravity, unconditional election, uh, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. In the middle, you have limited atonement, and probably um, the one where there's most disagreement. And so um, this is the question, for whom did Christ die? Um, areas of agreement on this. The sufficiency of Christ's death. Pretty, and, and I say agreement. This is evangelical Christians, Bible-believing, gospel-following Christians. Sufficiency of Christ's death. Christ's payment for sin, for sin on the cross is sufficient for the whole world. And so there's no question about the fact that Christ's death is enough for, sufficient for the sins of however many people, unlimited number of people. The efficacy of Christ's death, only those, efficacy, that's a challenge for 1130, efficacy, only those who trust in Christ for salvation, which we're going to refer to in one of two ways, the elect, the church, by the elect, and this is a, this is a term, it's a scriptural term, oftentimes when we think of election, there's a lot of thoughts, and it's a part of the Calvinism discussion, but the elect is, is how the church is sometimes described in the New Testament. So only those who trust in Christ for salvation experience the effects of the cross. And so it's only when you trust in Christ that the cross and the realities of the cross, redemption, reconciliation, become effective in your life by faith in Christ. It's not just automatic. It's not a universalism, for example, that because Christ did that, everybody is going to, everybody's saved automatically. You have to trust in Christ. And then third, the proclamation of Christ's death. The gospel is to be preached to all people. I think we can safely say that people on both sides of this discussion would agree on those three things. Areas of disagreement, really the area of disagreement. Does God in Christ intend to possibly save all people? Does God in Christ intend to possibly save all people? Or does God in Christ intend to definitely save some people, meaning the elect, the church? Does God in Christ intend to possibly save everybody? Did Christ die to make salvation possible for everybody? Or did, God, did Christ die to make salvation definite for some people? Did Jesus pay for the sins of all people? Or did Jesus pay for the sins of the elect only? Now the word that's been used in debate about Calvinism is limited atonement. I'm not going to use that word tonight. Instead I'm going to talk about, instead of unlimited and limited, I'm talking about general atonement and definite atonement. That word limited, I don't think it's, it's not a good word, even for, for those who, who believe that, that on that side of this thing or those who don't. Because who wants to limit the beauty of what we've been talking about at the cross? Nobody wants to limit 
that. And, and in a sense, everybody, by nature, the fact that only those who believe in Christ will be saved by the effects of the cross, that we are all limiting atonement in some sense. As, if, as long as not everybody is saved, and there's a limit here to who is saved, and it's based on faith. So, general and definite atonement. And so I want us to dive in to those two sides. General atonement. General atonement is first. General atonement. Those who would say that Christ died to pay the penalty for the sins of all people, thus making it possible for any and all people to be saved. That's what we mean by general atonement. Some truths and scriptures that inform that. God loves all people and wants all people to save to be saved. You look at all the passages that talk about Christ dying for sin and the universal language there. John 3:16, obviously the quintessential example, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. 2 Peter 3:9, he's not wanting anyone to perish. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, 1 John 2, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 4, 14, we have seen and testified the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. World, that word occurs 28 times in 1 John. Most often to refer to the universal picture. Christ died to be the Savior of the world. And even the text we're looking at, 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6, it's kind of been our foundational text, for all. So, General Atonement says God loves all people and wants all people to save. Christ to be saved. Christ died for the sins of all people. <coughs> if God loves everyone and truly wants everyone to be saved, then it would be inconceivable. Those who are, I'm going to kind of step into these shoes for a minute. It would be inconceivable that he would offer Christ to pay for the sin of only some people. The universal love of God requires a universal payment for sin. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the whole world, John 1, 29. We've put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men and especially those who believe. And that's where you see all men, that's a universal picture, and especially those who believe. So he's the Savior of everybody, not just the believers. The believers are added on to this picture, but he's the Savior of all men. Hebrews 2, 9, same thing. By the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. 2 Peter 2, 1 says there were also prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even, listen to this language, denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. This is false prophets, false teachers, and God bought them. Christ bought them. So Christ bought, in some sense here, clearly, all men, even false prophets and false teachers. Next truth, faith in Christ is necessary for the benefits of Christ's death to be applied to our lives. We've, we've talked about that already. Those who believe in him will have eternal life. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's when you are saved. And finally, the gospel then must be preached to all people because any person may possibly come to salvation. The gospel must be preached to all people because any person may possibly come to salvation. Obviously, go make disciples of all nations. The Spirit is in you to go to the ends of the earth. How can we really preach, authentically preach the gospel to all people if, if it's not actually available to all people? If Christ only died for some people, then how can we go to all people and say, Christ died for you? And this is what Jesus said. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. All you who are weary. He didn't say some of you. And so the picture here in general atonement is that, that God designed salvation to make 
to design the cross to make salvation possible for all people. That's general atonement, okay? Definite atonement. Let me step into these shoes. Christ died to pay the penalty for the sins of the elect, thus making it certain that his people will be saved. He paid for the penalty of the sins, penalty of the sins for the elect, thus making it certain that his people will be saved. And here's the picture that those in the definite atonement picture would drive us to. God loves the elect and designs their salvation in the cross. He loves the elect and designs their salvation in the cross. Ephesians 1, I got a long passage listed here, but what we see in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Listen to this language. Praise be to God and the Father. We'll start with the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. So the Father chose chose us, predestined us, adopted us for the creation of the world to belong to him. Then he talks about Christ. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and, uh, and understanding. And you get a little couple more sentences down. It says, in him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in accordance with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then you got the Spirit. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession of the praise of his glory. So what you've got is, speaking from definite atonement here, is you've got the Father who before the creation of the world has chosen set his affections on, adopt and predestine a people to be adopted as his own. You've got the Spirit who is making that a reality, sealing them for all of eternity. If the Father and the Spirit are focused on a definite people, then why would the Son die for all people? The Father has chosen, predestined this certain people. What Ephesians 1 is saying, so... The Son, why would the Son die for people that the Father has not predestined to be adopted as His sons? That would put the Son and the Father at odds. Son, trying to make it available to all people, but the Son, the Father, really only, only predestining and calling, adopting a few people, a certain people. So, the picture of definite atonement says, God loves the elect, designs their salvation on the cross. Christ died to definitively save His people definitively save his people. Matthew one twenty one says you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Not might save, not make possible. He will save his people. John 6, 37. Jesus himself says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. My Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. I will lose none of all that He's given me, He says. I will lose none of them. So everybody the Father's drawing to me, I will not lose. There's a definitive people here. Acts 20, 28. Be shepherds of the church of God, which Christ bought with His blood. He bought the church. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, for the church. Titus 2. Jesus Christ gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for Himself a people that are His very own, eager to, what, to do what is good. 
Now, this is where those who would advocate definite atonement would say, obviously, not all people are saved. Not all people are saved. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9 makes that clear. There's not all people are saved. So, let's think about this. Think about this with me. Not all people are saved. So if Christ died to pay for the sins of all people, then that means he has paid for the sins of all people. So why do still, some still go to hell? If he has paid for the sins of all people, then how would they go to hell? You say, well, well, they haven't trusted. But unbelief is sin. Keep in mind, their sins include the sin of unbelief, and that's been paid for. So if their sin of unbelief has been paid for, then how can people be in hell if their sins have been paid for? Even the sin of unbelief. That's why Hebrews 2, 17 says, this re- for this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and he might make atonement for the sins of the people. That's the propitiation picture. Hebrews 2, make atonement for. God's wrath has been satisfied. Sins have been paid for. How will they still go to hell if their sins have been paid for and God's wrath has been turned away? That's what those who would advocate different atonement would say. And so they would basically say we have three options. Three options. Number one, either Christ endured the wrath of God for all sins of all men. If that's the case, then all people go to heaven because he's endured the wrath. There's no more wrath. He's, he's taken it all. So there's no more wrath to be experienced. And so all men go to heaven. Well, that's universalism. We know that's not true. Let's skip down to the third option. We'll come back to the second one. Christ endured the wrath of God for all sins of all men, or Christ endured the wrath of God for some sins of some men. Christ endured the wrath of God for some, for some sins of some men. If that's the case, then nobody goes to heaven. So we know that's not true. Well, that leaves one option. Christ endured the wrath of God for all sins of some men. All sins of some men. Take it a step deeper. Does God always accomplish his purposes? If God always accomplishes his purposes and Christ died for the purpose of saving all people, then why are not all people saved? So does he accomplish his purposes or not? No plan of yours can be thwarted, Job says. My purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. What I have said, I will bring about. What I have planned, that will I do, Isaiah 46. John Owen said, if Christ died for all and not all are saved, then Christ died ineffectively, which cannot be. Christ died for all and not all are saved, then his purpose was not accomplished. Are you going to say that the cross of Christ is ineffective to save? That he died to make it possible and now he's sitting back just hoping somebody's going to take this offer? Does that weaken the picture of God in Christ? Christ therefore died for the purpose of saving a certain people, the elect. He said... I'm the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. I lay my life down for the sheep. And you get to John 17. He says, I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. My prayer is not for them. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. He's praying for Christians there. Jesus is not praying for everyone. Did Jesus die for people whom he refused to pray for? He was not praying for him before he went to the cross. He's praying for a certain people. You get to Romans chapter 8 and this picture of He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? 
talks about Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, as the right hand of God is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from him? And you get to the end of this picture, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now it says that God gave his son up for us all. But the whole picture there is who will bring any charges against those whom God has chosen. It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? You see that in the middle of that passage right there. And so it's talking about the people of God are those whom God has chosen and who have Christ as a Savior who is interceding at the right hand of the Father for us. Now, those who advocate definite atonement would say faith in Christ is the God-ordained means and Christ-bought gift for the elect, elect to be saved. This is where things get a little interesting, even a bit heated. Look at, look at Acts 18. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. They believed by grace. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for, for him. It's granted to you to believe in him. That faith is a gift Faith is something we have by grace. It's not God has done all of these things in Christ to come to this part of the table, and now we have to add faith. The reality is what definite atonement advocates are saying here, Scripture is saying here that, that faith itself is a gift. You can't even believe if grace isn't on you to believe. You don't have it in you. You're dead in your sin. How can you come to life if you're dead? You need grace as a gift to even believe. Packer, J.I. Packer, says, one, one makes salvation, uh, he's talking about comparison, general and definite atonement. He says, one makes salvation dependent on the work of God and the other on the work of man. One regards faith as a part of God's gift of salvation. The other regards faith as man's contribution to salvation. One gives all the glory of saving believers to God. The other divides the praise between God and man. Who, so to speak, who, uh, God, so to speak, built the machinery of salvation and now man has to, by believing, operate it. Talking about general atonement, he says we want to proclaim Christ as Savior. We want, yet we end up saying that Christ, having made salvation possible, has left us to become our own saviors. It comes about in this way. We want to magnify the saving grace of God and the saving power of Christ. So we declare that God's redeeming love extends to every man and that Christ has died to save every man. And then in order to avoid universalism, we have to depreciate all that we were previously saying and to explain that after all, nothing that God and Christ have done can save us unless we add something to it. And now, Packer says, the decisive factor which actually saves us is our own believing. What we say comes to this, that Christ saves us with our help. And what that means when one thinks it out is that we save ourselves with Christ's help. Faith is the God-ordained means and Christ-bought gift for the elect to be saved. It's not our contribution. Everything is God's contribution to us. And so, coming to the end here, the gospel must be preached to all people because some people are definitely going to be saved. Now, there are people who would take limited atonement or definite atonement to the end that we don't need to go preach and we don't need to do this. But there are many throughout history. There are many evangelistic preachers Charles Spurgeon, George Whitfield, who have preached the gospel passionately and faithfully for people to come to Christ that were advocates of definite atonement. And so they would say, yes, we preach the gospel to all people because we don't know who the elect are, who those who are going to respond by the grace of God. And so we preach the gospel to all people, and we know that somebody 
Somebody's going to be saved, but we don't know who they are, so we preach the gospel to all people. Bring those two together. And, and it's interesting. When you look in church history, I mentioned George Whitfield. George Whitfield was an evangelist. John Wesley, an evangelist at the same time. Both of them had divergent views on this. Really interesting, the debates that they would have with one another. So, which is it? It is 11.45 at night, and we're going to solve this thing right now. You ready? Okay. Like clear it up. All church history coming down to this moment right here. If only they could all be here, you know? I mean, this is good. Okay. And the danger is we're going to dive into this and like tomorrow morning we're going to have all kinds of ideas about whatever we just concluded because we're all getting tired. So conclusions, here we go. And it's not a yes or no answer. And, and this is obviously, this is obviously and I want to, I wanna, in all seriousness, want to approach this whole picture with as much humility as in me because we are in a long line of brothers and sisters who have gone before us and have had a lot of discussions about these things. And, um, and obviously God has used great men of God, women of God, who have, who have believed divergent things on some of these deals. But here's how, as a pastor, I look at this picture as best as I can based on the truth of God's Word. There are multiple perceptions of the will of God. Multiple perceptions of the will of God. Now, this is going to go back a little bit to what we did a year ago when we looked at who is God. And I want you to follow with me. It was the Lord's will to crush Jesus and cause him to suffer. We've talked about that. Acts 2.23. Just think about the cross. Jesus was handed over to his, crew, his, his persecutors, tormentors, by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So, it was the will of God for Christ to be crucified. Does that mean it's the will of God for people to murder? Multiple perceptions here of the will of God. Think about it in two ways. In Scripture, first, God's revealed will, what He declares. It's His Word. His Word. He says, this is what I command you to do, call you to do. My word, that's what I declare. First Timothy 3, 4, his revealed will, 2, 3, and 4. He wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's his revealed will. But do all men come to salvation and a knowledge of the truth? No. Does that mean the will of God is not accomplished? No. It means his revealed will, what he declares, is different from, second, God's secret will, what he decrees. His revealed will is what he says, what he declares in his word. His decreed will is what happens, what actually happens on the earth. He doesn't say, doesn't command us to sin. Is there sin on the earth? Yes. Revealed will, do not sin. Decreed will, there is sin. And God's in control of it all. Psalm 139, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You see the Picture this together in, in Genesis 50, 20. This is Joseph when he's sold into slavery by his brothers. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended, intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Did God declare to Joseph's brothers, sell him into slavery? No, but he decreed it so that in the end, the, Joseph's entire family would be saved from the famine because he'd be in Egypt. So revealed will and, uh, and declared will and decreed will, both there. Two senses of the will of God here. Now, how does that come together? This is where we talked about mystery last year. The sovereignty of God. He is in control. God is absolutely sovereign. 
He is absolutely sovereign over all things. There is nothing we can do, nothing you or I can say in order to catch God off guard. Sovereignty of God. He is in control. At the same time, there's responsibility in man. Responsibility of man. We are making choices. Now you see the sovereignty of God in passages like Romans 9, John 15, this, and Ephesians 1, which we looked at earlier. I chose you, predestined you. This is the sovereignty of God. He's in control of everything. At the same time, it is not a picture. Scripture does not give us a picture of us as robots responding to a mechanical God. This is not a deterministic fatalism. Or we're just, we're just doing everything that he, there's a picture here of the sovereignty of God and responsibility of man. We are making choices. So that when we come to Acts 2.23, Jesus was hand, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. This was sovereignty of God. This was not God sitting in heaven hoping that they were going to crucify his son. He ordained that his son would be crucified. At the same time, this is not robots who are doing this. This is men who put him to death, making choices that are responsible for what they have done. Now, here's the deal about our choices. Our choices are certain, not necessary. What I mean by that is necessary choices must happen. That's robotic, deterministic fatalism. We cannot act in a way contrary to God's plan. Certain choices, differences, they will happen. We will not act in a way contrary to God's plan. And that's where conclusion, I think Scripture teaches us here, is that our choices are completely real. We make real choices, but not completely free. We're not free in the sense of we can do stuff that can catch God off guard and he never saw it coming. At the same time, our choices are real. We make real choices every day. Can't blame somebody else for the choices we make. We make choices. Can't blame God for the choices we make. Yes, he's sovereign, but we're responsible. Our choices have real consequences with real responsibility. Now, how God brings this together, his sovereignty and man's responsibility, that's where the mystery comes in. But we are naturally responsible to God. The people who nailed Jesus to the cross were responsible for what they had done. You and I are responsible before God for our sin, even though we sin underneath the umbrella over all of the sovereignty of God. We're naturally, morally responsible to God, intellectually responsible to God, and we are ultimately responsible to God. And I listed some scriptures there where you see, we won't dive into them, but in every single one of those scriptures, you can see sovereignty of God, responsibility of man right together. You see, sovereignty of God and responsibility of man right together in each of these, each of these pictures. Acts 13, 48, just I'll point that one out. When the Gentiles heard this, the gospel, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Sovereignty of God, they were appointed for eternal life. Responsibility of man, they believed. It's, it's both together. It's just assumed. They go together. And so we see multiple perceptions of the will of God. Keep that in mind. Second, there are multiple dimensions of the love of God. Multiple dimensions of the love of God. God is love. What does that mean? Well, think about God's love expressed in five different ways in Scripture. First of all, His love within the Trinity. We see a picture of the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. God's love within the Trinity. That sometimes is used to describe God's love. Second, God's love for all creation. The Bible talks about how God loves all of his creation. Even the 
Birds of the air are loved by God, provided for, sustained by God. God's love for all creation. Third, sometimes Scripture talks about God's general love for all people. His love for the whole world. Scripture definitely talks about the fact that God loves the entire world, all people in the world. At the same time, fourth, God has a particular love for a chosen people in Scripture, undeniably. Listen to this, this description of God and His people in Deuteronomy. The Lord did not set His affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath He swore to your forefathers that He brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's an affection that He said, I'm putting my affection on Israel. See the same in Deuteronomy 10, Malachi 1. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. This is a picture of God's love for a particular people. And then you get the New Testament. Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so Scripture talks about God having a particular love for a particular people. Fifth way we see God's love described is God's conditional love. Is God's love unconditional? Before you answer that question, think about these Scriptures. He shows love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. John 15, 9 and 10. Jesus says, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. By obedience. Now this is where our, our, our cliches today, we have to be very careful. God's love is unconditional. True or false? Like, dude, it's midnight. We don't know. Well, here's the deal. In one sense, yes. In the sense of his love for all creation, in the sense of his love for all people, yes. But not in the sense of his conditional love. Often in Scripture, the love of God is talked about as conditional. What about this statement? Well, God loves everybody the same. True or false? Both. Both. Yes, he loves the whole world in the sense of his universal love for all people. Yes, he loves everyone in the same. Does he love everyone the same in the sense that he loves Israel in the Old Testament? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So we have to be careful with these cliches that we use. Multiple perceptions of the will of God, multiple dimensions of the love of God lead to, and this is where you're like, okay, I don't see where this is connecting. Here's where it connects. There are multiple intentions in the cross of Christ. Multiple intentions in the cross of Christ. And this is where just to bring it all together. Will of God, love of God, cross of Christ. I would say, based on what we've seen in Scripture, Jesus died for all. He died for all in the sense that, in the sense that his death is sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world. Referring here to God's general love for all people. He desires all to come to repentance. That's what Scripture teaches. He has a general love for all people. Through the cross, God desires and demands that all people trust in him. That is his revealed will, what he declares. So in the sense of his general love for all people, God's revealed will, what he declares, Jesus died for all. But at the same time, to stop there would be incomplete. Jesus died for the elect, for the church, in the sense that 
his death is indeed efficient only for them. God has a particular love for a chosen people. That is what Scripture teaches. From Old Testament to New Testament. Scripture talks about his love sometimes. So through the cross, God enables and empowers his people to trust in him. And this is God's secret will, what he decrees. This is what happens. Not everybody trusts in him. He's declared all turn to me. Not everybody trusts in him. That's the decreed will of God. The secret will, what he decrees. And through the cross, God is enabling and empowering his people to trust in him. So, where does that bring us? Multiple intentions, multiple implications. Three implications. Number one, we boldly confess the supreme sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross for the sins of the whole world. We boldly confess that. Supreme sufficiency in Christ's death on the cross for the sins of the whole world. We in no way minimize that. At the same time, second, we humbly acknowledge the gracious efficacy of Christ's death which secures the salvation of the elect. And here's where, here's where I believe this whole picture brings every believer in this room to our knees. Because there is not contribution from man to make salvation possible. It is all of grace and it is all for his glory. And even our ability to believe is blood-bought from Christ. And it is unfathomable, unexplainable, but the reality is I have contributed nothing to my salvation. He has saved me. He has bought me. I have been saved. Not active, passive. He has done a work of grace in my heart. And there is no other way to explain it than the grace of God. That is humbling. It should be humbling. At the same time, what does that mean for evangelism and mission then? We fearlessly proclaim the cross of Christ to the nations. We fearlessly proclaim the cross of Christ to the nations. We go to all peoples with a clear message. Our message is God loves you and desires your salvation. Some who would claim definite atonement would say, well, you can't say God loves you or God desires your salvation. Are you willing to say that? Absolutely. Scripture demands that we say God loves you and desires your salvation. That is his revealed will, declared will. He wants people to come to repentance. Does God love everyone? Yes. Does God want all people to come to salvation? Yes. Absolutely. So we preach that boldly. Clear message. At the same time, at the same time, we go to all peoples with a confident guarantee. And the guarantee is, as we proclaim the gospel, ladies and gentlemen, people will believe and be saved. It's not a might. There's coming a day to take this to the end in Revelation chapter 7 when every nation, tribe, people, and language will be represented on the throne of God singing his praises. You know what that means? That means you can go to the deepest, darkest, most entrenched in the world, unreached people group on this planet. You can preach the gospel and you can rest confident. Somebody's coming out. Somebody's going to be around that throne that day. Christ has made sure that every tribe and people and language will gather around singing his praises. And so that's great confidence. So we preach the gospel fearlessly in our workplaces, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and we're confident this gospel has power to save. Not maybe, it will save 
people from their sins. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.com.